We uh, do thank you. Um, we thank you that you are the eternal Father, um, that you have eternally begotten the Son, never um, creating him but giving him life uh, as, as uh, the second person of the Trinity. Uh, we thank you and praise you for that. Lord, we thank you for the opportunities we've had, even Emily encountering a fellow brother in the Lord. Um, just pray that that would, um, um, that, uh, just pray that this fellow is blessed, that you would grow him um, in his, his church, wherever he's at. Um, thank you for Emily being able to encounter him and hopefully encourage him in the Lord. Uh, Lord, just pray for um, the conversation I have with some of my family and just pray that it would get people thinking a little bit more um, and that there would be further follow-up opportunities for the gospel um, and uh, just pray for that. But um, uh, thank you for this time now to continually to meditate. And Lord, our, our desire, our desire is to understand what you have revealed. We understand that there are things you have not revealed about yourself. And there are things that we won't understand until eternity. And there are things we may never understand, even in eternity. And yet, oh Lord God, we want to understand what you have revealed. And we want to worship you and think about you rightly so we just pray especially as we think about the trinity and your relationships um, amongst the persons i pray that you would help us and that you would grant us grace and wisdom and care as we interpret the scripture so please bless this morning we ask in your name amen all right we are in the middle of talking about the trinity and what we've done um the Really what we've built up to from Old Testament to New Testament is essentially um, there is one and only one God. There are three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, that are uh, described as God in the Scripture. And then they, we understand also from the scriptural data they are distinct as persons. But the questions we are now launching into is, okay, but uh, what does that mean? Um, how are they one? How are they three? How do they relate to one another? And so that's what we've been focusing on and where we started last week is the relationship between the Father and the Son. And so what we focused on last week is the idea of um, the eternal begetting of the Son. Um, we walked through some passages to describe this. Uh, and just to reaffirm, this is not begetting in the sense that we think of begetting. There's an analogy there, but it only goes so far. Um, it is not temporal. This begetting never had a beginning. Uh, it is not creation. That's not what begetting is. But we do see in the scriptures that the Father eternally begets the Son. We looked at John 5, 26, where the Father has life in himself, and he granted the Son to have life in himself. We talked about that term, only begotten, uh, in the Scriptures. We also kind of saw in Hebrews 1, 3, the idea of uh, another way to think about this is you can think of eternal begetting sort of like uh, what Hebrews 1, 3 talks about, the radiance of God's glory, the radiance of the Father's glory. Uh, and so we talked about those those ideas. Now we're going to go a little bit further today in talking about the relationship between the Father and the Son. Um, any questions, though, or any follow-ups from eternal begetting that we need to clarify? I know that's a difficult one. Uh, you have to think of uh, a not a, um, a begetting that never began, uh, and but a true begetting. The Father truly is the Father, uh, and He's truly the Father of the Son. Um, and so, but begotten, not made, as the creeds would say. Um, and that's what we, we have to understand. And it's difficult, right? It's mind-bending. Um, but uh, this is how the Father, ha this is how the God has revealed himself. Any follow-ups on that particular uh, eternal begottenness idea? Okay, so then let's, let's move to 
um, this idea, when we're talking about the relationship between the Father and the Son, uh, and we're going to spend our time in John, so, you know, if you're not already there, John is like the premier book that um, illuminates a lot of the relationships in the Trinity. And here's what we're going to focus on in a few aspects, aspects of this. The Son voluntarily and joyfully takes his direction from the Father. Uh, that's kind of the main heading. The Son voluntarily and joyfully takes his direction from the Father. And you see this laced all over the place in John. So if you go to John, uh, let's just focus on one idea. Uh, let's focus on the idea um, where the Father sends the Son. The Father sends the Son. Go to John 3.16. And we're not going to just read 3.16. We're going to read 3.16 through 18. I think we read this the other week, but we'll go ahead and go back there. Someone read John 3.16 through 18. And we also said, I think this is when we quoted it before, in 3.18 there, when it says only, uh, or, and in 3.16 where it says only, that's the word only begotten. That's monogenes, okay? But we're looking at this passage for a different aspect here. Uh, what do you see in terms of the Father sending the Son? What language do you see in those verses? Instructions. Yeah, instructions. For what? All that Okay. Okay, yeah, he's sent. He's sent not to condemn, but to save. All right, so there's, there's a, to use Ned's language there, there's instruction or at least purpose. Um, what do you see about the sending? Okay, yeah, out of love. Good, very good. Um, love for the world in a generic sense, all right? Um, and did the son, uh, when did the sending happen? <laughs> Kind of, sort of a trick question, but it, when, when does the sending happen? Does the sending happen when the son is a human? Yeah, exactly. So the sending happens before the incarnation. That's what I'm getting at, right? The sending happens in, um, before the, the word, to use chapter one's language, is incarnate. Um, God is sending the word um, to become incarnate to, in order to save. Uh, but here, what do you see? The Father sends the Son, and He sends the Son it, from heaven. Okay? Um, we can see this elsewhere. Go to John 7. Uh, John 7, uh, 28 through 29. Okay, so what do you see about the sending here? What? What? Yeah, the son didn't send himself. The father sent the son. And Jesus is really explicit about that. So the father's initiative is, is the, the, the initiative in this starts with the father and goes to the son. Okay? 
uh, it's not that the son is like, ah, oh, do I have to? No, absolutely not, right? The, the son is totally in accord with doing this. Um, but we see the initiative is from uh, the father. Um, I've got one more here. Let me see. Um, yeah, let's do one more. Uh, flip over a page to John 8, 42. So I'm going to read John 8, 42. the same thing, right? That the initiative, if we were to put in the words like that, of the sending of the son starts with the father. It's not starting with the initiative of the son. It's starting with the initiative of the father. And that reflects uh, the begetting, right? The father eternally begets the son. There's a sort of um, priority, at least logically, um, in um, with the father in begetting. And we see that reflected even in the relationship with the father to the son. The, son send, uh, the father sends the son. The son does not send the father. Uh, and, uh, and what we understand is Jesus is, remember in John 1, Jesus is talking, uh, John says that the only begotten God, referring to the son, uh, is making the father known. So in Jesus' whole mission and what he's doing on earth, it's not just what he's doing on earth in obedience and submission and uh, being sent, it reflects an eternal relationship. Now that assertion, what I'm making here, is actually fairly uh, controversial, um, both in history and in recent history. Uh, just to give you a little framework, I'm going to take a little aside just to make you aware of something, and then we're going to dive back in. Around 2016, when, <laughs> ancient history, right? Um, when I was going to, it was the year I was going to, to seminary, or starting in seminary, um, a whole online snafu erupted concerning uh, this issue of, does the son eternally uh, submit to the father, or does he only submit as a human? Uh, and so there were people on both sides of this debate, and everyone was name-calling, and it was nasty, uh, unfortunately. And we're talking about like solid evangelical scholars, and it devolved into, in many cases, not all cases, but in many cases, something very unfortunate. And the debate is still ongoing. So you've got guys on one side of the debate, like Wayne Grudem and Bruce Blair and John Feinberg and Owen Strahan, uh, who are saying, yes, the son eternally submits to the father. That what we see uh, describing here in John and some of the passages I've just said to you, that reflects an eternal relationship. And on the other side, and probably the majority, um, they're saying, uh, let's think of some names, uh, Mike Riccardi uh, uh, would be one of these guys at TMS. Uh, let's see who else. Ro uh, Robert Letham, maybe not. Uh, Scott Swain, maybe some names you've never heard about. But you've got these kind of big names on the other side saying, no, there's no eternal submission of the son to the father. Okay, so you've got big names on either side debating this whole issue. And the question is, is do what we see in, say, John, for instance, and in other passages about the son's relation to the father, do they actually represent what's going on in eternity or only in terms of what's happening on earth? Okay, now you probably already discern based on what I, um, how I've, kind of leading you through these passages, I am on the, um, the eternal submission side of things. So I'm trying to be honest in saying, hey, there's a debate about this, 
But I think based on the scriptures and based on what they're designed, because even the incarnation of the Son, even as we see in John, is designed to reflect an eternal relationship, I think there's a reflection back. Um, and some people would be very upset that I would say that. I think that's what the scriptures teach, and so I'm bound by what I think the scriptures teach. Okay? But I just want you to be aware of that. If you want to look into it and go down that rabbit hole, uh, like I've done a little bit in the last few weeks, you are welcome to, um, and I'm happy to talk to you with you about it. But that's where we're going, so let's jump back into John. So, the Father sends the Son. Uh, here, let's, let's look even a little bit more at that idea of sending. Uh, go to John 3. Um, John 3, John 3, 31 through Okay, so we've got some ideas of sending here and coming again, but there's a little bit more to it. This time, what is highlighted? What is Jesus highlighting in his sending? Okay, yeah, so there's the earth and heaven connection. We've kind of seen that. But what else do you see? What about his sending? What is, what is Jesus doing in his sending? Yeah, he's bearing witness to what? So all he's seen and heard from whom? From heaven, from the Father, right? So this is very interesting, right? Uh, we, we started way back when we affirmed that even the language of the word in John 1, or even what we see in the creation account, which is what John 1 is alluding back to, God is inherently communicative in his life, in, in eternity. So here you see that reflected, right? The father speaks uh, you know, to the son. He see, the son sees uh, the Father, right? Uh, we, we see that in John 1. No one has ever seen God. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has made him known because uh, what gets affirmed elsewhere in the, the John's literature and his writings is that the Son has seen the Father. He has seen and heard from the Father and he bears witness to that in his work, in his, um, his incarnate state. He's bearing witness to other people. So the Son has seen and heard from all eternity, and he's passing that on. He's passing that on in his mission. Uh, go to John 5, a couple pages over. It was fun. I read through John um, a, a couple weeks ago, and I just highlighted passages that like give us some insight into um, the relationships of the Trinity. There's a lot. It's a lot of fun. Okay, John um, 5, 19 through 23. So I'm going to read that. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, a son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. 
whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed them passed from death to life. Okay, what do you see in there about kind of this aspect of sending? So we're still under that heading of sending, but here we get more information about what that sending entails, what the mission is, so to speak. So what do you see about the son's mission? Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, we get passages like that, and we're like, okay, this is, again, from the initiative of the father. The son is totally in accord with this. We see that here. Um, but it, it ultimately comes in terms of logical priority uh, from the Father. Um, so we see that. Uh, what else? Well, I see an interesting kind of transition or in verse 20, and it revolves around love. So mm-hmm. And that's a very important thing, and you'll, you'll see it. It goes both ways. So here we see the father loving the son. And because he loves the son, he's giving authority to judge. He's giving him this mission, a mission that's going to include the son dying in behalf of his people, right? But it's born out of love, an eternal love uh, between the father and the son. And here we see the one direction from the father to the son. Um, let's go ahead and uh, I'll jump ahead. Uh, let's see the other direction. Um, so uh, go to 1431 real quick. And you could see this elsewhere in John. I'm just picking one passage, but um, 1431. Someone go ahead and read that. Uh, actually, doo, 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 just start in verse 30 to get a little continuity. So 1431. So on the one hand, you have the father sending the son and giving the son a mission out of love. But what do we see here? We see the reverse, because what's going on here? What does it say? Yeah. Yeah, he's doing the, the son is doing the father's commands. Why? To show that he loves the father. Um, and so you see that tie-in that, you know, uh, we see elsewhere in John as well that if you love me, you're going to keep my commandments. Well, we see that with Jesus, too. He loves the Father, so he's going to keep the Father's commands uh, and the Father's mission. But that, that love is a mutual love uh, that has happened uh, for all eternity. If you go to John, I think you see this in John 17, 24, the high priestly prayer, which if you want to think about intertrinitarian relations, right, you got John 17 and the Son praying and talking to the Father, um, but in 1724, we get this, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, and in John it becomes very clear that the people given to the Son, that happened in eternity. That was a plan in the eternity, uh, eternity 
that the Father gives to the Son, out of love, a people uh, for the Son to rescue, which is a very key theme throughout John, but we see that a little bit here. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. And there it's explicit that the Son is saying, this love that we have had with one another has happened before the foundation of the world. The Father has always loved the Son. The Son has always loved the Father. Even though the Spirit isn't explicitly mentioned, we understand that there's that same sort of love relationship between the Spirit and the Father and the Spirit and the Son as well. That there is eternal love between the persons of the Trinity. Okay? Um, any questions so far? Um, and again, we kind of jumped over to love just to, um, from uh, chapter 5 because we saw it there. Uh, but what we're looking at is this idea that the son voluntar- voluntarily and joyfully takes his direction from the father. Why does he do that? Because they love one another. Uh, that's where really where it comes, uh, it comes from. So the son sees and hears from the father. He bears witness um, and uh, does that. Any questions or comments up to this point? Which chapter? I'm right where you were at. Okay, 17. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And that's beautiful because what we, we talked about this last week, but we see it in John 17, especially that um, think about it like this. There's an eternal love relationship between all mem- all persons of the Trinity. And we see it, especially between the father and the son highlighted in John. But that grounds our salvation because that love spills over first to create the world um, and to create creatures who have the capacity, not the same way, but um, a capacity to love and be loved by God. And then the son's mission sweeps us up into that inner Trinitarian love. Um, And so this is where the doctrine of the Trinity is intensely practical. Right? It is not just some esoteric thing that academicians sit and debate, although sometimes it can devolve into that, unfortunately. But what we see in John is this, this grounds creation, this grounds redemption, uh, the inner Trinitarian love between the persons. Okay? Um, so thanks for pointing that out, Tony. Um, uh, what else? Any other questions up to this point? We'll keep going, but I just want to make sure we... Big stuff, right? Like... Um, this has been helpful for me just in studying it. It's like, wow, this is, this is just, it feeds your soul. Um, and uh, because we're seeing, uh, we're seeing who God is and also how he sweeps us up into that. Anything else before we keep going? Okay, um, we talked about the Father sending the Son, and within that, the Father sees and hears from the Father. The Son delights to do the will of the Father. This probably goes without saying, but go back to John 4, John 4, 34. Someone read that. John 4, 34. Jesus said to them, 
So what do we see there? Yeah, he sustains it, but even more than that, on the part of the son, how did the son view doing the will of the father? His own nourishment, like he loves to do this, okay? This is not, uh, this is not like, ah, oh, dad, do I have to, you know, that kind of, there's none of that in the Trinity. This is a delight of the son to do the will of the father. Uh, 530, uh, John 530. Um, yeah, John 530. Let's say that. Let's someone read that. So the son seeks uh, not his own will, but the will of the father, right? Uh, he delights to do this. Uh, John 6, 37 through um, uh, 40. See, this is so repeated, like throughout all of John in particular um, does this. Um, it's just over and over and over again. Uh, John 6, 37 through 40. Someone go ahead and read that. Again, we see the, the son delights to do the will of the father. What is, part of, what is his will and his mission? To redeem a people that the father gave to the son in eternity, right? The elect of the chosen. Um, so that's, um, that's just aspects of the father sending the son. We could add to this even more, and I'll just highlight a few of these. Um, the father gives all things into the son's hand, um, we just read that in John six thirty seven. Um, the Father gives to the Son. Uh, he gives a people. He gives all things into His hand. He does it out of love. We've already talked about that. Uh, the Father grants authority to the Son. Uh, John seventeen two. Um, John seventeen two talks about you've given uh, the Son is praying to the the Father and he's saying you have given Him the Son authority over all flesh. So the Father gives authority over all flesh to the Son uh, that, um, uh, that they may know you, ultimately, that that's the, that's the purpose in the, the Son's exercise of authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to those who know you. Um, the Father commands the Son. We already read about that in John 14. Uh, you see it elsewhere, John 17, 4. Uh, John 10, 17 through 18. John 12, 49 through 50. The Father commands the son and the son obeys and delights to obey. Um, so what you see in all of this, um, it, when you pull it together, is that the father and son have eternal love for each other, but the father, uh, even in eternity, has a primacy in terms of directing, of initiating, of planning, um, and the son is totally in accord with that. Now, what we must be careful of is not to think, oh, the son didn't know this or he learned this at any time. No, because the son has already shared the mind of the father for all eternity, right? They are God. They each have the character of God. God is omniscient. And so they know this, but there is still a sort of directing activity based on the scriptures, it looks like to me, 
uh, between the Father and the Son. The Father initiates, the Son obeys. Um, the Father plans, the Son uh, works it out uh, in terms of uh, that plan being worked out. Why, what is it driven by? We've already seen that. Out of love between the persons. Okay. Um, what questions do you have on this? Now, let's think about some reasons potentially why people will be kind of disturbed by this. All right? If we say that the Father, the person of the Father, commands and initiates and plans and that the Son submits, obeys, uh, takes his lead from the Father, where might people get a little nervous? That Jesus is subordinate. Right. Jesus is subordinate, which is an ancient heresy, right? There is an ancient heresy, uh, you know, around the time of Nicaea, well, even before that, I'm sure, but, but around the time of Nicaea, you see this kind of fleshed out with the Arians, right? And what they would say is, well, the Son is divine, sort of, but he is inferior to the Father, right? He is inferior to the Father. And what they mean by inferior is like he's a lesser God. Uh, he's, and he's separate, right? So uh, he has a lesser being, okay? How do we know that in John, John is not talking about, when he talks about this language of obedience, submission, direction, how do we know for sure that John does not mean that there's any inferiority of being? Okay, so there's this gift of everything to Christ. We can even be a little more explicit than that, right? Where would we go to say that, um, there is absolutely zero inferior difference of, um, of being or essence or nature between the Father and the Son. What, what John 1.1, 1, 1, right? John 1.1 1, 1 or John 1, 1.18, where it is very clear there is distinction between the Father, and yet, what is it? Um, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, distinction, and the Word was God, meaning what? All that the Father is as God, in terms of his nature and his essence, is the same that the Son has. Remember, in general, when you're reading the New Testament, most of the time when it talks about God or uses the word God, it is referring to the Father, most of the time. There are clear exceptions, like John 1.1, John 1.18, maybe a couple other places. But even in that, there's, a, there's an understanding that in John 1.1, the word is with God and the word was God. Well, who was just talked about as God? The father was. And so it's really the idea that whatever nature um, that the father has in being God, that is also the same nature and being that the son has. So there is absolutely no inferiority of being or essence, which is the ancient heresy. So this is the, this is the tension that John raises is that you can have equality of essence and nature and yet distinction in role. Even a distinction in role to the point where the Father sends, uh, commands, um, and the sons obeys. Which shouldn't be too much of a surprise because what other, what other thing exists in, the, in reality where we see equality of nature and yet distinction in role? Marriage, right? Uh, now, I'm, let's be clear here. I'm not saying that... Um, I'm just saying that with marriage, um, there is equality of essence and nature and value, right? But there is a clear distinction in role where um, the, um, the, the husband uh, 
directs, initiates uh, out of love, and then the uh, wife uh, submits, comes under, reflects, but out of love, right? And it's not an issue of inferiority at all. It is an issue of this is how um, it is and how God's designed it. Uh, And we see a similar sort of thing in the triune life itself. At least it seems that way based on John and other passages as well. That the father um, is always the initiator, the planner, the architect, uh, but the son carries it through. And there's mutual delight and love. And there's no, there's no like imposing uh, of one will on another. Absolutely not. There is one will in God. But it is, um, they are totally in harmony. They share the one will and they act in regard to that one will appropriate to their um, relationships. Okay. Um, so there's no, when we talk about this idea of the son submitting or obeying or any of that, there's absolutely no indication, um, because John gives us no indication, that means anything with regard to inferiority of nature or essence. Because as soon as we say that, we're heretics, and that's bad. So we don't want to do that. What questions do you guys have? Yeah, Eden. Going back a couple weeks, we talked about Yes. Right. So explain why we can't use analogies. So, good. So what we said at the beginning of studying the Trinity is we need to be very, very cautious with analogies. Now, I did say, and it goes back to um, an axiom that we have, it could never be wrong to talk about God the way that Scripture talks about him as long as we're understanding the Scriptures according to authorial intent. So, um, that being said, I would say that scripture, I don't know if I should call it an analogy or not, but the scripture does give us terms that are appropriate, like father and son. And it's not just, I mean, those are true terms of the father and the son in eternity, but he has so created the world and creatures and even father, father-son, father-daughter relationships such that when he then uses those terms as the ultimate communicator with us, like there are certain inferences and understandings and indications from something like a father-son relationship that we are to carry back to God. Otherwise, he's being deceptive, right? Like it would be wrong for him to use father and son and communicate that and say, well, there's, some, there's no connection between those two, what's going on in humanity and what's going on in father. You can carry it too far, um, and so there are, if you want to call that an analogy, uh, but it's true of God that the father is really a father and the son is really a son. Or we go to the, the idea of the word, right? The father is the speaker. Uh, the word is what is spoken. The breath, spirit, carries it along. But those are words and ideas that the, are inscripturated, and so I'm way more comfortable with using those rather than developing some other separate analogy that um, breaks down, right? Um, So, you know, you hear the three-leaf clover is a famous one, right? Three-leaf clover, you've got one clover, and you've got the three leaves. Each of the leaves is equally a clover. Uh, But there's still a problem there, right? There's actually probably 
uh, the, each leaf of the clover is not the whole clover, right? Which is what is going on in the Trinity, that each of the persons is fully God. There is one being in God. There is one divine nature, one divine essence. And each of the persons equally has that nature and essence. They share it. Um, they possess it um, equally. Um, so I'm happy to use the language that Scripture is using to talk about the Trinity, because then I know I'm on solid ground. It's when we go outside of that to something like, oh, the egg, right? There's the, the yolk, and there's the white stuff, and there's the shell, um, that you, you essentially be, end up into things like tritheism, right? Because the egg is, uh, the shell is part of the egg, and the yolk is part of the egg, um, and things like that. And so it can easily miscommunicate um, who God is. And so that's why I just like, I'm, I'm holding on to the analogies and the pictures that aren't scripturated, and I want to just talk in terms of those, because I'm just very nervous about um, anything outside of that. So I think the two that scripture gives us are the father-son uh, relationship, um, and then the, you know, the communicative relationship, the speaker, the word, um, and the breath, the spirit carrying it along. And even there, like if you in a sense, if you press that or thought too much in a creaturely sense, uh, you could break things pretty quickly. But um, as long as we're very closely matching the language that Scripture uses, we're on safe territory because that's the language that God himself gave us to talk about himself. Um, so you see how much this correlates with communication, doesn't it, right? How we think uh, correlates strongly with how we communicate. Uh, and so we reflect what God has done in his word with the words uh, and the concepts he has given to try to accurately conceive of um, who God is and how he's revealed himself to be. That was a long answer to a simple question. It's a good, does it answer your question? Yeah. Okay, Genevieve, you had your hand up. Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, and even the Mormons... Um, uh, right, anytime, uh, but Jehovah's Witnesses are like the classic uh, example of the modern Arians, right, where they're going to say that, you know, Jesus is a God. That's how they translate John 1 1, which is a mistranslation. Uh, but what they're communicating by that is there's a less, he's a lesser being. Um, you know, he's, he's divine in a certain sense, like an angel could be divine, um, but um, he is a creature. He is a lesser deity, and that is heresy. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, Tony? I would say if you wanted to take a deeper dive into this, because these are difficult things uh -huh. for humans to understand straight up, yep. um, I would suggest here, and we touched closely, John 6, yeah. 22 through the end of that chapter. Uh, this yeah. is where Jesus blew a lot of people out of the water. Yeah. Um, yep. Right. But the key to it is, I'm just saying on the surface, the key to it is Jesus kind of conflagrates the concept of the bread of life, mm -hmm. the bread of manna. You know, yeah, right. Moses as a bread coming him, he is the bread of life. Mm -hmm. Totally confused the, the, the Jews because they were, this is the point, they were trying to look at it in humanistic terms. Mm -hmm.
right. That doesn't make sense. So then when you get to <coughs> 60 here, their disciples, disciples are going, oh my goodness, this is crazy. How can we even follow what he's saying? And Jesus unties it when he brings in the idea of the Spirit. Mm-hmm. It's kind of, it's, yeah, so there's this, this, in all of these things, in an understanding of Scripture in general, we can't understand them to the full ex- extent the way God wants us to unless we have the help of the Spirit. Um, and so even, now, remember what we said at the beginning, God is inherently communicative. Uh, we even see that in John, where the Son and the Father communicate, and the Spirit communicates. So when God creates and creates stuff and creates us and creates human relationships, um, he is sharing and he's communicating with us through words. Um, He is communicating his, he's sharing his own communicative ability with us. So we use metaphors and things like that. God uses metaphors and things like that. It's communicative, but in such a way that we could easily go astray if we were to, you know, to Tony's point, literalistic, right? Because even we communicate all day long with metaphors. That's just part of being human and communicating. We just do. But if you were to pick out any one of those metaphors and like press it too far, you're going to go beyond the authorial intention. And so even as we look at the scriptures and let's say even the father, son, the father is truly the father and the son is truly the son and the son, um, because we have indications of this, um, uh, you know, uh, submits and obeys the Father. But then you could take that language and go too far with it, couldn't you? You could say, well, so, um, there must have been a mother to have a begetting, right? And all of a sudden, you've gone way beyond what Scripture has just said in what that, I'm not going to call it a metaphor, but the language that God is using to describe himself. You thought in terms uh, of a creaturely way and brought that back into uh, the the, the Trinity in a way that Scripture does not affirm, and nor does it take us there, right? Yeah. Yeah. Don't read the shack. Don't do that. <laughs> um, yeah, Bruce. Right, that's a Roman Catholic transubstantiation view. Yeah, and Orthodox too. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, true. Yeah, it's a good point. Yep. Good. Your mind smoking yet? Hopefully a little bit. But again, what's the point of doing this? Not so that we can de- debate. We want to understand what Scripture says. 
but ultimately so that we love and we know uh, the Trinity better and we know how to respond and relate better, okay? So Lord willing, next time we will start talking about the Spirit um, and the Spirit's uh, role in the Trinity uh, and then ultimately the Father and then try to tie it all up uh, a little bit with some implications. So let's go ahead and pray. Um, Father, you are amazing. We thank you that you have sent the Son. We thank you, Son, for coming. We thank you for rescuing the people that the Father gave you. Lord, we, 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 that's why we gather. That's why we even exist. That's why we're gathering this morning to sing your praises, to hear your word preached, not our word, but your word preached. We're here to, um, to pray together, knowing that we're dependent on you, just as the Son is on the Father. And we want, to be, um, we want to be emulators of our older brother. Please help us, O oh Lord God. Uh, please help us to proclaim you just as the son testified to what he had heard and seen. Lord, help us to testify to what we have heard and seen to glorify the son and to glorify you, the father. We ask these things. We pray that you would give us strength and courage to do so. Bless the rest of this morning, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.